0: Fasten your seat belts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm gonna get that gun of mine, and I'm gonna change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot.
1: Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and this week we'll be discussing the film Queen and Slim for Black History Month. I'll be joined by Akua Jamfi from the British Blacklist and filmmaker Victoria Thomas. Written by Lena Waith and directed by Melina Matsoukas, Queen and Slim is on Amazon Prime Video Now, It stars Jodie Turner Smith as a lawyer called Queen, who has a first date with the easygoing Christian Slim, who's played by Daniel Kaluuya. After shooting a white police officer in self defence, the black couple decide to bypass America's so called justice system and go on the run. Tensions boil and characters emerge as Queen and Slim fight to survive and help each other to live in the moment.
0: Can I ask you something? What took you so long to respond to me? I sent you a very well-crafted message three weeks ago. And today, out of the blue, you hit me up asking if you want to grab dinner. What changed?
1: I didn't feel like being alone. Not tonight. she
0: so you turned to Tinder. So what happens tonight?
1: Did you think we were gonna have
0: sex? Nah, I <laughs> No. I thought we were gonna hang out, maybe get to know each other.
2: Field, execute a turn signal back there. Go ahead and ask you to step out of the vehicle for
0: me. Could you please hurry up? What did yeah. you say? It's just called
1: Why is he under arrest? Get back what is your badge no, chill, just chill! I'm reaching for my selva. My first guest is the industry commentator Akwea Jamfi, who has more than 20 years of experience in the business. She's the founder and managing director of the British Blacklist, a platform that celebrates and supports British, African and Caribbean creatives. And my second guest is Victoria Thomas, a BAFTA-nominated British filmmaker. She's written, directed and produced several short films and documentaries. Her filmography includes producing Walking in the Shadows, which is a British-Nigerian coming-out story, and the upcoming documentary Born in New York, Raised in Paris. So welcome, Aqueer, How are you? Hey, Anna. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm really good, thank you. Well, thanks for coming back. You came on episode nine in 2019 at the swanky Annabelle's nightclub remember that
2: yeah that was very beautiful a lush setting so thank you for having me there I think I remember having a wonderful cocktail and not wanting to leave but I had to go to another event so <laughs> thank you for the brief moment I don't think I'd ever been to Annabelle's at that point
1: <laughs> no I hadn't and it was quite something so yeah, yeah that was really enjoyable and it was International Women's Day as well so it was a great day yeah um, how are things with the British blacklist
2: very very busy um I think on the back of the world going to pot. Those few moments of lockdown, I say few moments, three months of um, lockdown, really gave me a chance to breathe, exhale, and really think of the business properly and plan what I want to do going forward once we were released into the world again, which we still haven't really been. But it's been a really good time of reflection. And right now, we're really busy with stuff coming up for LFF, London Film Festival, lots of projects I'm working on. It's just really going really well quite positive actually
1: we look forward to seeing those come to fruition and welcome to victoria welcome to girls on film hi and thanks for having
0: me i've had a lot of great things about the podcast and i've listened to it so it's a real pleasure to be here
1: excellent you come recommended by a queer, and she's told me that you've just been accepted onto the writer's lab which is supported by meryl streep and nicole kidman Congratulations.
0: Thank you very much. Yes, I'm quite excited. I keep saying that that means Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep are now my aunties. I qualify to call them aunties.
1: Brilliant. (laughs) Do you all just have afternoon tea together?
0: Just have afternoon tea together. I mean, the only shame is because of COVID, we are having to do it via Zoom because Mm. normally it's in person. Of course. At a retreat. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) That's so cool, though. When will we see the results of that? That's the question, I suppose, isn't it?
0: I hope next year. I mean, the script is in definitely good shape. We've got some funding already and Screen Scotland is um, on board as one of our development partners. So hopefully we can film next year. subject to the money, of course, with films, it's always about the money.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Gosh, oh, well, good luck. can't wait to see what what you come up with. So we're going to start off by talking about Queen and Slim today. Now, I obviously watched this when it came out and found it an incredibly powerful watch heartbreaking with very strong performances but i'm more interested in what you both think so i wanted to ask aquia first overall what was your response to queen and slim um oh my god <laughs> what have i just seen my gut was
2: wrenched and you know i felt quite spent after being on this visual emotional roller coaster i thought it was brilliant brutal problematic um, i think everything you actually want from a film if you're talking about inspiring debate reaction emotion and a statement about what's going on in the world today. So I had a lot of mixed feelings. I loved it, I hated it. It made me angry, it made me laugh, it made me proud, all sorts of things. I think I've watched it about three times and I've moderated a discussion that got quite heated afterwards. So it's, it's just it evokes so much emotion.
1: Victoria, did it evoke emotion in you?
0: It did, but I think filmmaking has destroyed watching films for me forever. <laughs> because I think when I'm watching films, there's just so much more that I take from it. And um, I think one of the things I thought when I saw *Quid and Slim, of course, one of my favorite films is Thelma and Louise. Yes. And it sort of reminded me of Thelma and Louise and it was like a modern day take on it. And of course, with a very different lens. So I sort of liked the way it was made relevant for today and what's sort of going on in the world today. And of course, I mean, looking at the film, it was so well shot and choreographed. You could tell that I, I felt like I was watching a very long music video. You could really tell Melinda's background
1: queer. are there any particular scenes that stand out for you that you found particularly powerful? This is going to make me sound like a bit of a perv,
2: but it is the sex scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not because I'm, you know, Daniel Kalu is way too young. He's like my nephew. And Jodie is like, you know, a younger niece. So no, not in that way. But it was just, you know, Melina's background in music video and really complimenting black skin on screen. I just think it was, it was just such a stunning shot. And it's not often we're afforded such tender moments between black actors especially of a darker skin tone so I was sold on that particular visual even though I did have a problem with the what it was set against which was the um, protest something crazy happens and I just didn't like the juxtaposition because I thought that moment was so beautiful that was one of my favorite scenes not because of the sex but because of the sex (laughs) that's all right
1: you can say it (laughs) but no I agree it's a very interesting sex scene and beautifully filmed yeah and Victoria what were the standout scenes for you
0: I think the ending, it stood out for me, but I sort of wanted it to be the opposite of what it was. Right. <laughs> but you know, I understood why it had to end that way. But that was kind of pregnant for me because I was kind of really hoping for a different outcome.
1: Nicely skated around the spoilers there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Victoria Molina has directed many music videos in the past, including Beyonce and Rihanna, and the film certainly has a great score. How did you see her style come through in the film?
0: And the thing about people who do music videos and advertising is that I feel like as a filmmaker, they're so spoiled because in those mediums, you work with such massive budgets Mm. and the image is quite important. So the the work tends to be incredibly slick. And so for a first feature, I think she was very lucky because I think the budget was around 20 million. So you could see that so much emphasis had been placed on the production design and sort of bringing that style and slickness in music videos into the long form so it literally felt like you were watching one long music video because also the soundtrack was really it was handpicked so like well (laughs) and the music was such an integral part of the film yeah like i wanted to shazam everything and create a playlist just watching it because i felt like i was just watching music video but of course it was complemented with a very very um incredible story but it was just the way everything was framed like they paid so much attention to the colors. The palette was so consistent and it was such a rich texture and so vibrant. I probably sound very <laughs> filmic and nerdy here, <laughs> but that, that was it for me when I was watching it, I was just like, because when you watch like a 60 second ad or a three minute music video, that's really what you get. You literally just see the money on screen. Mm. And because when you watch a lot of first features, you know, Sundance is very good at all the indie features and you can see the sort of slickness in the story and stuff, but you know, you know that it was done on a micro budget or low budget. But you could literally tell the difference in the fact that they just had the money to invest in yeah. the look and feel that they want, and they really wanted this to look just incredibly slick and incredibly vibrant, and they succeeded.
1: Yeah, yeah. agreed. Absolutely agreed. Do you want to add anything to that?
2: No, no, I agreed. i it, it was especially with the music. It, it, they were very clever in pairing scenes with the music because something about it speaks to. And understanding how Black people watch films, and I, I maybe I'm being a bit simplistic about it, but
1: no. there's something
2: about yeah, being in tune with that, and that's another thing why it's important to have people of the culture telling stories for the culture. Even though you want it to be received by a wider audience, there is something about that because Lena knows, Melina knows, they knew what tunes to drop right where, and they knew even if you hated the film, you'd be like you remember that scene because that song's against the backdrop. Very clever, very clever.
1: Now, Queen of Sim's wardrobe choices, of course, are an iconic part of their escape, sort of both practically and sort of symbolically, really. What did you think about Shiana Torini's costume design and the way that it's weaved into the story?
2: I mean, I think everyone gets stuck on the fact that Queen is running around in a little dress and boots. And if it wasn't for the obviously wonderfully hot weather, I would have been more horrified. It was just all very aesthetically pleasing. So... I wasn't as concerned about it. I kind of fell into it. Okay, so she's wearing a dress. Because I've seen other films where the lead woman is dressed in some really scanty clothes and it doesn't make any type of sense, but here we go. I think there's a film where the lead is um, running around in high heels for a very long time, doing a lot of things that I don't understand. And it wasn't until maybe the person writing the script was like, oh, because it was a, ma- a man who wrote the script as well. And I think then he was like, oh, yeah, actually, maybe she should now reference the fact that her shoes are hurting her. And it was like way... <laughs> way too deep into the film way too long into the film and it's like I know a woman would have been like first act shoes are out the window trainers are on yes yeah, so i wasn't really bothered but it was just it all just complemented and Jodie's got such a beautiful body um but i just think the clothes complemented it was interesting choices though so shiona worked on insecure and insecure's wardrobe is phenomenal so she definitely has an eye and she knows what uh, people like and I mean, they made it because conveniently, obviously, they're going to her uncle, who's got a different type of work lifestyle and has some different type of friends in his house. So the clothes available would not necessarily be. No, because yeah. he, I think to the best of my knowledge, the Bukim Woodbine
0: wardrobe was based on like, um, from, for, it came from Sean John, because it was sort of yes. like Dapper Dan. It's yes. like Dapper Dan and Sean Combs, which is probably what you get from moneyed people in the Bronx or Harlem. You know, I think, and he was supposed to sort of represent that kind of
2: character. That made sense, though, because I mean, yeah. the, you know, the the slouchy. We've not talked about Daniel Kaluuya because he doesn't normally in the, in in real life in London. He doesn't wear, you know, uh, what they're called, velvet. Um, Velour. Trapsies. That's not his style. Yeah. Velour, that's the word. So there, there's that. So that made sense for the characters and where he got his clothes. I mean, it's just literally understanding why. I don't. I, I think I was a bit like I don't understand why people are not getting the fact that queen's options were limited but yeah. then maybe people are thinking well actually i'd stop up at a corner store and whatever first walmart i saw and got a,
1: <laughs> something more sensible i thought there was some really fun stuff in that wardrobe there's a really sparkly jacket that there's, I've been taking
0: yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah there's a
2: few things they could have packed along and stuff like that but she opted for that i mean
0: but but yeah. i I, th- I think it's also that thing of it's easy to sort of say you just stopped at a corner shop but have you ever been on the run from the police yeah do you know <laughs> No,
2: I haven't.
0: Oh, actually, Victoria, we've talked about this before. Do not mention the no, past. But, but, <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to say? I remember watching you it up. it was that line that Vivica Fox said, you know, when um, yeah. she was at the bank teller, when of course, and somebody put a gun to her head and she let them clear out the cash and she was fired. Yeah. And when she obviously enacted her revenge and she had the policeman in the same yeah. thing, she said to him, you know, what's the safe word when there's a gun to your head? It's that kind of thing that it's easy yeah. to think that. But I would imagine that if I'm in a run from the police, I'm probably not thinking that I could stop at Prime,
2: and get something more suitable. No, no, you're not. And but the thing the thing for me, what I would have done, would have got my uncle's velour, because I love being warm. But I, again, it was hot. Because if, if this was set in London, I'd be like, I'd be drowned in my uncle's velour suit. I'd have tied up the bottoms and done some sort of like J-Lo style, you know, tied it up at the bottom, put some high heels on. That's the practicality there, isn't it? So I'd have a bit of sexiness with the high heels and then um, had the velour hoodie on and then wrapped up at night time. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you would have had the headspace to think about all of that. <laughs> I magically. literally would have, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> While the police were banging at the door.
0: Cop, kill us! Cop, killers, cup killers. Who's self defence. We're in the black money
2: class. How you gonna know, outrun the police? We don't have to outrun them. We just have to make sure they don't know where we are. This is Kentucky, my friend. Listen, there's some war going on out there, and you welcome this into our home? Is this y'all? Y'all really gave us something to believe in. We needed that for real.
0: Let them go. We got a new Black Panthers. Power to the people. All we can do
1: is go forward. There is nothing back there for us. Let's just keep going. Yeah, Talk to me a little bit about the politics in this film. What, what kind of messages does it highlight that are important, do you think, especially, obviously we're in Black History Month now?
0: I think it was, of course, very reflective of what's happening today. But I think what I also liked was the fact that, you know, Lena also sort of told the story from like our point of view. There were some sort of nuanced moments that I got as a black person. Sure. For example, there was the scene where the older policeman was really condescending to the young police officer mm-hmm. when he heard the noise. And so, because he was so angry, because the way he was treated, he actually let the criminals go. And I get that from being, you know, when you work in sort of environments where like you are the other, and you're not really valued. And at times you do question who your loyalty should be to. So what I liked was the fact that on the face of it, it definitely portrayed what we see in the news, but she also sort of captured the nuances of the reactions and also the emotional impact on black people when you're sort of caught between that kind of system, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, I I think that was one of the scenes. And also when they are on the run and they run into the guy that works at the garage. And it's this kind of, I think there's this whole thing out in society that, you know, everyone's trying to say we're not a monolith. And especially marginalized communities that get tarnished with the same personality. And so if a black person does a crime, then we're all tarnished as criminals. And this is what's part of this, what this film is talking about as well. And it's just, it was interesting to see that this guy wasn't, you know, they become social media famous, they become newsworthy, um, newsbites and all that type of stuff. But this guy was like, I'm not feeling what you're up to. It's not a good thing. You're not heroes to me. And it's just interesting to see the different sides of the coin where, you know, Black Lives Matter, people get accused of being woke, you know, liberals that just want to bring down the right and take away everyone's guns. But actually, there are a lot of conservative black folks as well who aren't all... Against police and all that type of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that the community has internally and opinions and mindsets and moods and political views that it doesn't necessarily come across in wider society. We're all kind of tarnished with the same mindset. And I think this film does a bit to challenge that notion.
0: Yeah, because there's definitely a hint of class.
2: Yes, definitely. You know,
0: and and how class and money and means affects your perception or your politics as a black person. I remember there was something I found quite hilarious in Chris Rock's, his latest special tambourine. And he sort of said, um, you know, he wants to hate the police. But at the same time, he's Chris Rock. You know, he's wealthy. If somebody (laughs) attacks his house, he's going to call the police. So it's that kind of thing where, yes, there is the racism. Yes, there's the politics. But also as Black people move through life based on their success and based on their financial means, yeah, your views do change because politically you're on the side that serves your existence
1: the most.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Do you think this is one of the benefits of having a film which is predominantly black cast is that you've got the scope to represent lots of different parts of the experience.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's the benefit of having a black writer. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think, I think we've seen lots of films with lots of black people and they can be quite one dimensional, especially when the people behind the scenes don't get that we're not a monolith. But I think when you have black executives behind the scenes, we sort of know the diversity within our existence. You know, I mean, the black british experience is very different to the black american experience to the black french experience to the sub-saharan african experience to the caribbean experience you know even within africa east west south everybody exactly. has their own um position or rather i guess circumstance in life so i think when you have a black writer i think she really captured that um difference and the nuances and like
2: different people and i think having a black writer who's of the age that she's representing, it felt very now, and and as Victoria yeah. mentioned earlier, there were nuances that were easily recognisable because we are living it now, and she yeah. was on the ball with that, on the nose with that, so it didn't seem untrue, there were scenes in there that you were like, yeah, I, I get this, and I can relate to it, because you could also have a black writer who isn't connected to the story that they're trying to tell, and then it still becomes wrong, we can have an all-black cast, it doesn't even matter because the story is not executed well, and the person writing it doesn't quite get it so it, then I thought what does this mean now where are we now where if we're going to talk about diversity access and having power to tell our own stories now we're going to have a battle as who of the black community has a right to tell which story in which way because they're again not being a monolith we've been fighting so hard to have certain stereotypes dismantled that some people might feel that actually to get over the line or break through the gates they need to continue the um, stereotypes we've been trying to break down. So it's just it was just very interesting. But I think at the very least, Queen and Slim does speak to us quite honestly.
0: But I think also with Queen and Slim, it's not just about the writer, really. It's also who the producers were. True. I think yeah. Lena was also a producer, so she had a, um, an opportunity to make decisions. I think what we see, chances are with the programme that you're talking about, even though there was a black writer, if you check the production company behind it or the executives behind it, they were probably not black. And I am a black writer who is also a producer and I can tell you that with the best of intentions as a writer, you can tell a culturally specific story. But if the executives that you're dealing with have a certain gaze on the um, culture that you're trying to portray, they will push the script and the writing into what they understand and what they believe the audience is going to buy. And if you don't have the power behind the scenes to make decisions or have final cuts, you will find yourself as a Black writer writing something that Black people are going to find incredibly questionable. It's happening a lot now, and for me personally, that's my biggest worry about the whole diversity thing, Mm. because now Black stories are seen as currency. Yeah, But the reality is that the production companies that have the capacity to develop these stories and put them in front of the commissioners are not Black-owned. Mm. so the the writers are getting work, or you know people have been commissioned to write stuff that people think is diverse, but it's not been shepherded to the marketing the right way and then when it comes and it doesn't work or there's a backlash, then there's a claim that the stories don't work. but I think the diversity battle will be lost until black owned companies have access to the market
2: yeah, I agree
1: well, this is something that sort of is relevant to the award season chatter and and some of the measures that both BAFTA and Oscar are trying to take towards um, you know more diversity more inclusion yeah. I mean a queer we've been on TV together several times talking about award season and I am pretty sure you you mentioned Queen and slim a few times yeah and rightly so because it was massively overlooked why do you think that was and do you think with new measures that situation is possible to change um
2: it was overlooked because you know there's an issue with the membership system mm-hmm. across most awards bodies because usually members of prestigious awards bodies are white folk in the majority which is why all the major awards bodies have made a concerted effort to diversify their members lists but then on top of that it's the wider industry especially from distributors and how much they get behind a film and how much marketing budget they have and how much campaigning they do you know we aren't Unfortunately, we all think we're too clever to get affected by advertising, but it's not true. Queen and Slim was a lot in my world because that's the world I'm in. But if you're not in that world, who? what's Queen and Slim? What is a Queen and Slim? You had people that didn't even know who Harriet Tubman was to even understand that the magnitude of having a film about Harriet Tubman coming to the big screen and the magnitude of having a British, black, Nigerian actress leading a Hollywood film about an African-American civil rights heroine, the magnitude was lost because... The campaign wasn't as strong and also people were like, I don't know who that is, doesn't relate to me, I don't relate to it, so I'm not going to watch it, I'm not going to cast the all necessary votes. So the whole problem is, my long-winded answer is that it's, uh, that's the reason why films like Harriet, Queen and Slim and a few others were overlooked at the time. And, you know, I had a real bee in my bonnet about why farming wasn't recognised at yeah. the BAFTAs because I just think if it was anybody else, and I will say if it was a, a white film, it would have got all the attention.
0: You and I have this argument every year. And I always (laughs) say like people unfairly blame the awards because it's not about the awards. It's about, by the time we get to the awards, you've got to remember that there's been like a three, four year campaign for that film from the financing, when they're going through the labs, when they're going through the festivals and all these markets where they've been signed posted as something to watch and put on lists. So by the time, you know, we get to an award ceremony, you know, I'm a BAFTA voter. I already know the films that everybody's paying attention to. And then if you give me like, I don't know, 100, 200 films to watch,
1: chances are I'm not going to watch all of that. That's the problem. Yeah. And that's what BAFTA, I think, are actually trying to address in terms of yeah. the structure. I mean, it's very it's very dense what, what they're yeah. doing with the changes. But one of the biggest problems was that not enough people were watching yeah. enough of the films and they are definitely trying to, to work on that. But let's move on a little because you mentioned Farming, which is streaming on Prime Video for people to actually watch now. Great. So Victoria, tell me a little bit more about this film and why people should watch it.
0: So I have to admit that when I watched the film, I realised just how ignorant I was of um, Black British history. <laughs> because i had no idea that so many kids were farmed like of course farming refers to the practice of some west african families i guess farming their kids out to white working class families Mm -hmm. to be fostered back in the 60s and 70s when they were studying in britain and of course for a lot of these kids who were raised in these families where they were so culturally different there's a lot of i guess trauma that came from been raised by parents who did not really have an understanding of your cultural background at a time when the far-right movement in the UK was quite prominent. And this was a story of one person who was farmed, um, the actor Adewale Akinoye Akbaeche, hope I got the name correct. Uh, yeah, and this was his own um, story about trying to fit in, and I guess having this self-hate where he felt he had to hang out with the skinheads and be white and hate black people to be accepted and for me it was such a harrowing story as a director i don't know how he did it because i you know i remember saying sort of saying to akoya when i came out i felt physically sick because it almost felt like i was watching a documentary and i realized that that was somebody's life and then of course at the end all these photos came out of people who were farmed on the screen and then i saw Aqua's photo there <laughs> and we've been friends for years and i had no idea <laughs> And so it was that thing for me where, yeah, it really um, stood out for me because I saw people I knew and then I realized, you know, what a lot of the kids had gone through in the 60s, 70s. I then realized how lucky I was that I was raised by two black parents. and <laughs> did not leave home until I was like 18. And I had sort of taken for granted the impact on me spending some of my formative years in Eastern West Africa where I was not raised with a racial awareness because everybody around me was black.
1: Did you ever have any dreams of what you wanted to be growing up as a boy? Any? Like PayPal, clean and white.
0: You're a pet. <laughs> Tilbury, skins. Tilbury, skins. Tilbury, skins. Tilbury skins. Tilbury skins. Tilbury skins. Tilbury skins. Tilbury skins. You've been running with them,
1: Topher skins, yeah. Beating up your own kind, thinking they want you. took everything that boy had is there anything you wanted to add about farming um
2: yeah i mean it's a story of a bunch of us um and i'm possibly super biased because obviously it's part of my story my history but i heard about Wale talking about planning this film for all the years that he had been in um, pre-production and um one day he put a call out on instagram to say if anyone's been farmed um send your picture in or something like that and so I emailed him to look, I'm all over this. And so I sent my picture because I had a picture of myself and my best friend at the time when I was fostered in Somerset. Like a school picture. They We were so close, they let us take a sibling picture. So I sent that in. And in seeing the film, its final edit, I, I was heartbroken watching it. And it was, it, obviously it triggered memories and stuff like that. But um, what struck me is that this story has never, ever been told. And it might be cast aside as a British-African story, but it's actually is a British story because... This story is so important because it affected not only the black children that was sent. I, I I always called it private fostering. I never called it farming. That's now the the buzz term for it. So that's, if I say fostering, that's what I mean. So many of us were fostered to white families, but it was all about us and the pain and sometimes the pain and trauma that we went through. Not everyone had pain or trauma. Some people had great ex- time just like being fostered and it was fine. But um, it also affected the white families because when I... Um, in the early days of Facebook, I remember doing a search for my best friend at the time just to see if I could ever find her. And I didn't because she got married. And then one day out of the blue, she contacted me and said, are you my long lost best friend who used to live in Somerset? And we had so we had that kind of Sylla Black surprise, surprise moment on Facebook. <laughs> and then during the conversation, she kind of she was like, you know, you broke my heart because you left one day and I never saw you again. And I'd never, ever thought about her missing me at all because all I wanted to do because that family unfortunately weren't very good family I I didn't suffer physical or any other type of abuse they just very neglectful and they were just in it for the money so I was like mum I'm not staying here I'm not going back and I was about nine years old so I went back to my mum after about a year a year and a half but she was saying that you broke my heart when you left and I never thought that she was emotionally affected because all I knew was my pain so the fact that this film is potentially treated as something that's just a black story it's really not because there's people like my former best friend whose life was always also affected by some little black girl that turned up in her village one day and we fell in friendship love with each other do you know what i mean so i'm very emotionally attached to um farming and i just it's yeah it's a, it's a brilliant film and i just also think that Damson Idris who plays a lead it was phenomenal phenomenal
1: that's an amazing story thank you so much for sharing that um let's talk about one other film which you both picked out that's showing on prime video and that's if beale street could talk which we've covered before on girls on film when it came out i i think it's a tremendous film would either of you like to speak to to that film and why you love it
0: for me it was the technical execution (laughs) i love the way it was shot i really love the way it was edited and i feel like nowadays i use it as almost like a filmmaking masterclass. I mean, of course, James Baldwin and his writings is always very, very powerful, but I think there's something about the craft in Barry's work, which was also quite prominent in Moonlight.
1: Barry Jenkins, yeah. You know,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah it was just, it was literally for me, it was just a beautiful watch. Like I could not blink or take my eyes off the screen because <laughs> I felt like I had to just watch everything just the way he executed it. But um, the acting was, of course, very, very amazing. He has a tendency to bring black actors that black people know to the forefront. And so I was very happy to see some of those actors on screen. And I think it was a very, very good ensemble. Yeah, it was one of those films that on paper I shouldn't like it. It shouldn't really be fun to watch. But when I watched it, I was just so captivated because everything about it was just so well executed.
1: Now another film coming up on Prime Video um, on October 16th is Time, which is directed by a female filmmaker called Garrett Bradley, and it's a story of Fox Rich, whose husband got 60 years for armed robbery. She's got six boys, and she spent the last two decades campaigning for his release. Hello.
0: Did you get any word from over at the big house oh, today? Yes, they mean,
2: thank you. Nothing yet. Nothing yet. Okay. You got a chance to call today? I have not.
0: No? Okay. Many of these people have no respect for other human beings' lives. No matter how sane or how understanding you try to be, it just will make you lose your absolute mind. If you know how I'm gonna be smiling when you come home. Success is the best revenge. Success is the best revenge. You're going to show them that they can't treat human life this way. Success is the best revenge. Just hang in there because when you get them home, they're going to pay, they're going to pay, they're going to pay.
1: I thought this was a really powerful moving watch with an amazing woman. Would either of you like to comment on that film? I think you've had the chance to see it.
0: Yeah, it was very... um... Can I always say, like, when I watch some of these documentaries, I realize just how cocooned my world is. Because I could not believe that he had 60 years for armed robbery. I'm not saying that robbery is right. <laughs> but the sentence just felt excessive. And it was that thing where I realized that, you know, he wasn't an exception. Like, this was a thing in America. Yeah. You know, incarceration was big business. And I know that there was a part in the film where the um, protagonist talked about... The fact that a lot of things were getting defunded or getting their funding cut in um, Louisiana, but not the prison system because it was such big business. So I I watched it um, yesterday and I watched it again today because it was one of those things that I kind of I was so shocked when I was watching it the first time that I kind of had to recap and just make sure that I was watching something that wasn't completely fictionalized. I mean, I love the way again, the way that it was put together as a filmmaker. That's something that I always pay attention to. The fact that they had all of those home videos and archives that sort of really gave you an insight into the family and what they were like before the disruption. And of course, her dedication to her family was just phenomenal. You know, I'm not married and I don't have kids, but would I spend 21 years fighting to that extent? I don't know. You know, I really came out of the film really with a lot of admiration for her. And I literally had to go on Google and research the family and read up a bit more because I was just so fascinated by their story.
1: I did also. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think, I mean, for girls on film as well, it's, it's this woman is just amazing. I mean, she's kind of an ultimate yeah. feminist in a way because she just did not give up and she didn't accept anyone underestimating her, not for a second.
2: Yeah, I think she represents a lot of black women who, against all odds, just fight so hard for justice for a number of people, whether it's for their husbands, their sons, their daughters, you know, the synopsis alone is like, I know this story. I know many women who have, who are living this existence. And I know lots of young people or people who are older in the prison system, especially even in the UK. This is very much focused on the America. We always get these documentaries out of America, but it's rare we get this, this storyline coming from the UK. And I would love for someone to explore what happens in the UK, because the same thing happens. It's just less spoken about. Because I do know some people who've had this ridiculously long sentences for something that was considered... A smaller crime.
1: I, I would be really interested to see that because yeah, you were right. We do increasingly you see films about like that, just mercy and such like in the US, yeah. but very little in the UK. So that, that's a really interesting idea. Now, thank you both for talking about those films with me. Is there anything else you both wanted to add about Queen and Slim, or indeed any of the other films we've been chatting about?
0: I mean, one of the things I liked about Queen and Slim uh is the fact that i did not like the lead character i did not like the girl i thought she was so annoying oh but i really loved the fact that she got away with it because as a screenwriter you're always told to make women likable yeah okay and i just love the fact that she was just so brash she spoke her mind yeah she wasn't the most logical of people and she probably got daniel into more trouble than he needed to be well daniel's (laughs) character because there were times when i was looking at him i'm thinking why don't you just leave this girl behind and just go you know, <laughs> and I really love the fact that, you know, she was so real and so annoying and was not made out to be the soft, sweet um, person with the ridiculous backstory that you're always forced to write as a film, as a woman when you're writing other women.
1: Well said. And that's something we, we love to celebrate on Girls on Film is the flawed, interesting, real woman. Yeah, Brilliant.
2: <laughs> Can I just quickly add that that sparked so much debate at the Q&A that I hosted um where because there was yeah. a for and against like some people were like, yeah, go strong woman. And others were like, no, that's the angry black woman. And then the guys were like, the subservient black man. And then the others were like, well, no, he's protecting his queen and he's listening to his queen. And for once, just seeing the judge. Gent- oh, it was, it was, <laughs> that's, that's the power of Queen and Slim. It instigated so much real heavyweight debate. And um, so th- for that, it's just brilliant.
0: No, for me, what I saw was her sense of entitlement, which I could completely relate to because she was a lawyer,
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 you know
0: yeah. what I mean? And I felt mm-hmm. like she was so far removed from the realities that Daniel's character had you know, yeah. he was a lot more scared of the police where she was very much like, but we haven't done anything and we know our rights. So I, I could see her fish out of water because I have probably been that person <laughs> at yes. times as well. When you, <laughs> when you kind of forget your color and you're just thinking, yeah, I'm a lawyer and I know what I'm doing, what are you on about? Or why are you people worried? So I, I, I could see it and I could, and I saw how it got her into trouble. So in a lot of ways, I probably felt like I was looking into a mirror 10 years ago.
2: And she annoyed you. Uh <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, <laughs> aha. <laughs> she,
0: <laughs> No, because then I realise at times as well, how insensitive we can be when class comes in.
2: Because yes. I think
0: in, with the black people, we don't always talk about class and the differences are privileges and how that shapes our gaze on society and society's yeah. problems, you know? So I, when I watched that, but I kind of like the fact that Lena captured that as well. I felt that again, that was another thing where she captured a nuanced black person that we don't get to see often. But I think she did it quite deliberately in juxtaposing people from those two different backgrounds in that situation. And how they would handle it.
1: Yes. I feel like we need to get you two back on Girls on Film. I'm, I'm loving oh. this conversation. You're a good team. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's been, it's been so much us, fun. Man. And um, yeah, do come back on Girls on Film. And uh, meantime, take good care. Both of you. And you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having us. I'm scared. I'm sorry. I'll be brave enough for the both of us i'm taking you dancing let's go you're willing to risk getting caught so we can dance hell yeah don't worry you're safe here
2: i just want to let you know that i'm okay and that i love you i want a guy to show me myself i
0: want
1: him to love me so deeply i'm not afraid to show him how ugly i can be
0: thank you for bringing us this far
1: queen and slim is on amazon prime video now Throughout Black History Month in October 2020, Prime Video customers can watch a curated selection of movies and TV shows grouped on a Black History Month carousel when you're browsing the Prime Video app. The carousel will help you discover movies and TV shows starring and made by black artists, actors, writers and directors from the UK and around the world. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thanks to our executive producer, Heather Archbold, our producer, Jane Long, our assistant producer, Heather Dempsey, our intern, Eliana J, and our partners for this episode, Amazon Prime Video. Do follow us and message us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find all the info in the episode description. And you can also find our Patreon details there. We have a Patreon page where you can give a small amount each month to support us. That's at patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. Do subscribe and review us if you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget to check out our special Film shows on the BFI's YouTube channel. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Aquea Jamphy and Victoria Thomas. See you soon and stay safe. Can I be your legacy?
0: You already are.